Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. You can find the show online at buildingthefutureshow.com or follow me on Twitter at Building Show. You can also find it on iTunes, Stitcher, and YouTube. Welcome back. Today on the show, we have Vitaly Golom. He's an entrepreneur, investor, 500 startups mentor, author, award-winning designer, keynote speaker, and consultant. Vitaly, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad that glad you uh, agreed to do this. You have quite the impressive background, and uh, I've kind of followed you over the years, and I'm very excited to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Yeah, so maybe just for our listeners, why don't we start off with uh, kind of where you grew up? Sure. Uh, I was born in Odessa, Ukraine, which is on the Black Sea, kind of across from Istanbul. Uh, these days, it's known to be a little bit of a uh, party capital, a little Las Vegas and Miami oh, really? uh, combined. Uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a fun place to be. And uh, my family immigrated when I was eight years old. Uh, we went through about five months in Austria and Italy, ended up in San Francisco. And uh, I grew up from the age of eight in Silicon Valley, Bay Area. Uh, went to the same high school, Homestead High School in Cupertino, as Steve Jobs in Bosniak, and uh, just kind of accidentally, coincidentally, was put in a great place to grow up and uh, kind of get, get engaged in the world of uh, entrepreneurship and innovation at a very young age. Sure. So why did they pick uh, San Francisco? So, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Jewish, Ukrainian, uh, Soviet um, immigrants uh, had, had a few choices, uh, but the process was kind of complicated and had to have some, some family or some kind of connection. And uh, we had some very distant relatives in San Francisco at the time. Uh, okay. There are lots of folks that went to New York, Brighton Beach, to L.A. and other parts of the of the U.S. and Israel, of course. Uh, so we ended up here. It's uh, It was not quite super intended, but uh, my parents decided to choose San Francisco. Awesome. Yeah, San Francisco is beautiful, so I, I get it. I mean, <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm curious. You got into startups at the age of 13 as an intern. I'm kind of curious to know more about that. Sure. So uh, when I was in junior high, I was quite a geek. Um, had had a nice computer at home because uh, my father was uh, working and doing kind of night gigs at home as a draftsman. Um, and I got into it and uh, met a friend uh, whose father was a famous entrepreneur from Russia, moved a company called Paragraph over um, when we were uh, in sixth and seventh grade or so, that's when we met and uh, started messing around there. Uh, the company is now a big part of it is now Evernote. Oh wow! Um, so that's kind of the history. Yeah, it's a big history back there. Uh, so we got the chance to kind of mess around at the office and do different trade shows um, and demo the products when we were, you know, 12, 13 years old. Uh, we messed around with bulletin board systems (BBSs) well before the World Wide Web. We turn off the ringers on the phones at home and uh, let people dial into our home computers and have chats and exchange files and things like that. That's awesome. Um, and, I remember those days. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so we got started with that. And, um, you know, so by the time I was 15, um, I was also doing a lot of uh, graphic design at home, just kind of started on that and uh, got a job at Kinko's because I wanted a, a cool car. Uh, on my 16th birthday, and my parents told me, earn it. So I went and did that. So that's how I got started there. That's awesome. So did you go to any post-secondary education? Yeah, I have a design degree. I started actually as a communications major at Santa Clara University, 
And uh, I was already working at a dot-com then, had a very busy work schedule and took a semester off. When I came back, I went to a small design school called Cogswell. Uh, it's well known in the gaming world and the world of special effects. Uh, so the entire Matrix uh, special effects team came from Cogswell and a lot of animators and game studios. Oh, wow. Well, from there. Um, yeah, so I ended up getting a degree in computer and video imaging, which is kind of the technical bits and ends of the design world. And, um, yeah, so I, I started there while I was already running a front-end team at a, uh, enterprise.com that was bought by Cadence. Um, and I, by the time I ended there, I was running uh, my first uh, company, which I actually co-founded with my dad uh, while I was in high school. And he, when he went on to do some other things, I took over, and it was a printing company that I was running. Oh, that's awesome. So you've been in the game a long time, and you've been doing design and whatnot for a while. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, uh, so so after after college, um, I ran the, the print company for about uh, four, almost five years, sold that, started a design firm in San Francisco, uh, quickly grew that to a second office in L.A., and we had a design, uh, development team in Europe, and ran that for about five years as well. Uh, that grew well, and then uh, decided to start a product company, which is Keen, which I just recently uh, sold as well. So yeah, congrats. So a venture-backed company. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you want to talk about a little bit more what Keen did? Sure. So uh, Keen, kind of drawing on both sides of my experience, uh, which is the print world, the graphic arts world, as well as the world of startups and tech products. Uh, Keen is a SaaS product, a software as a service that helps printing companies sell online. So it's uh, you can think of it as kind of a shopping cart on steroids. Um, with some ERP and kind of day-to-day -day management things that uh, small printing companies would use. Uh, it's a very large industry, uh, very old-school industry. There are about uh, 25, 30,000 print shops in the U.S. that you can, depends on how you count, um, and still, you know, close to a $700 billion industry worldwide and continues to grow. Um, we, we launched with our first product. We won a number of different awards. We raised some venture capital. Uh, we ended up uh, selling this this particular product, and um, right now uh, the company is focused on a marketplace. So think of it as kind of Airbnb for print. So we'll be announcing some things there a little bit down the road. Okay. Let's talk maybe a little bit about the CCS Startups. What exactly is that? So CCC Startups is an organization that I started with a couple of friends uh, in Europe, uh, friends that we became friends kind of. Uh, supporting entrepreneurship in Europe um, as part of accelerators and different things like that. Um, as part of Keen, I actually opened an engineering office in Kiev, Ukraine, uh, where most of our team was, and um, ended up going to Kiev quite a bit. And in the process, I became, you know, kind of expanded my mentoring that I do at 500 Startups, or did at that point, expanded it to a few different accelerators in Europe, one of which was in Kiev. And um, ended up seeing, you know, big opportunity. I understand the culture, obviously, but uh, I can probably say I'm 75% American, maybe 25% Ukrainian, based on how much time I spent where. Right. And um, uh, did a big conference there called Startup Adventure. Uh, it was a two-day conference. We had about 1,700 registered attendees. Uh, we brought out about 45 different speakers. And it happened to fall on the second week of the Maidan Revolution in, oh, wow. in Ukraine. Oh, um, so it was a little bit of precarious, uh, precarious time. We, you know, a couple of speakers uh, didn't make it, um, and it was actually a very interesting kind of time capsule when 
uh, the conference, you know, went off with no problem. Uh, we did very well. And kind of uh, based on that, we kind of saw the opportunity of uh, bringing knowledge and um, experience to Eastern Europe, Central Europe, some of these up-and-coming areas. Uh, so with my partners, uh, Mike Reiner and Max Gorvitz, we decided to then roll this, this format out to different areas. And we've done two tours in 2015 already. Uh, the first was Middle East. So we did it in about 10 days. We did uh, events in Cairo, Egypt, in Baku, Azerbaijan, and a partner event in Antalya, Turkey. And then in April, we did a partner event in Gdynia, Poland, um, which Dansk is where kind of World War II started. So also a very, uh, very historic place. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then Budapest, Budapest, Hungary, and then Zagreb, Croatia. So in each one of these events, we basically bring out uh, some of our friends or about 15 different kind of been there, done that uh, investors and entrepreneurs that come out and do short, very focused talks. You can think of it as kind of like TED for startups. Oh, okay. That's so, really cool. Uh, yeah. So we, so we do that and, and kind of connect with, the, um, connect with the local ecosystem, with local investors, local startups, kind of try to bring mentoring to them. Um, and it's just a really great format. And we've built some fantastic friendships and relationships. Uh, with folks. So we've done six events in 2015 so far. Uh, we may do a couple more uh, by the end of the year, but we'll certainly do more in 2016 and in other cities in the region. Um, and that's kind of a big piece of what we do there. Um, and we've decided to also then build a seed stage venture capital fund uh, for investing in the startups that we in, uh, meet in those regions. Right? So kind of that could be a whole very long topic on its own, but um, uh, Max and Mike both uh, started or co-founded uh, very well-known accelerators in Europe, and kind of we we will understand all of this kind of accelerator space. So now we're moving to the next step, which is what do they do after that? So that's something that we're still uh, working on. No, that's awesome. I'm so I'm curious. Like majority of people, you know, move to the valley and try to you know get investment and whatnot. What do you find appealing about kind of moving outside of you know North America? Well, you know, there's some things that are, you know, there's some problems that are global problems that you can start somewhere and then you can move to Silicon Valley and you can kind of argue that, let's say, if you want to be a movie star, you move to Hollywood. If you want to be in the world of finance and be the best of the best, you move to New York. Uh, if you want to be the best of the best in technology and innovation, you move to Silicon Valley. Uh, it's not necessarily the truth anymore because it's much harder, uh, much easier to start a startup anywhere in the world than it was you know, 15 years ago in Silicon Valley, because uh, all of these tools are readily available. And uh, the only really big difference is that, or you should say, you know, two of the big differences are that you have the world's best talent uh, here in Bay Area, mm -hmm. um, and you also have the most venture capital investment here in Bay Area. But that has its negatives, right? So uh, venture capital goes in waves, and right now we're, at, you know, we're nearly at a peak of one of these waves, and that means that uh, valuations are high, uh, but also, it's, it's nearly impossible to hire software engineers in Bay Area. There's just not enough. Um, this is a big advantage in some of these other uh, regions, especially in Eastern Europe, where you have uh, a massive population of very well-educated, uh, highly qualified engineers. What you are missing there is the knowledge and experience in sales and marketing. Right. And, but it's, you know, it's, a lot, it's a lot easier to teach that side. It's a lot easier to teach sales and marketing than it is software engineering. Right. Sure. Um, so that's how we see it. You know, it, it's a combination. It's a bridge. Um, also, you know, regional problems are being kind of ignored, right? So 
somebody building a startup in San Francisco is not particularly interested in the ins and outs of, let's say, some kind of infrastructure or e-commerce issues in Eastern Europe. Sure. But these are very large opportunities that somebody has to tackle at some point, right? Um, so the challenge is how do you, how do you uh, get rid of the brain drain effect, right? Or how do you minimize it? So the best and brightest from these from these regions don't just pick up and leave because they have no support system. Um, so it, you know there's no easy answer, but a big part of that is for them to have access to capital, uh, sure. to have many seed investors, have angels, to be able to get rolling, get started. So there are hundreds of accelerators in Europe, um, of various qualities. You know most are you know they're kind of government projects and things that don't bring a whole lot of value. They provide some educational value, but you know they don't survive. Uh, on their on their own because they've run out of money and there's no returns from these companies. Uh, but um, you know they're we're trying to facilitate more angel investment, uh, more interest in the region, and uh, for people to be able to develop companies and, and stay there a bit longer before they make a move or try to expand. Uh, best case scenario, you know there's there's some companies I know in in Ukraine they kind of say that instead of moving to Bay Area, they outsource their sales and marketing to Bay Area or to the U.S. and other regions. Oh, where that's interesting. Whereas most of the team still, yeah, still stays there, right? So it, that's one way I think of it, right? So one way is a lot of software companies here, they outsource their software engineering somewhere, but you can also do the reverse. You can outsource the sales and marketing. Right. I guess I, I never really thought about that angle, but it does make a lot of sense. And not everybody can just pick up and move halfway around the world, right, for a number of reasons. So one big reason that a lot of these guys can't just pick up and move to America is they don't have this personal support network. Sure. Uh, creating startups is very, very difficult. It's, pers- it's a lot of pressure personally. And for them to also pick up you know, from a place in Eastern Europe where their total overhead might be $500 a month to San Francisco where a one-bedroom apartment costs $3,500 a month, you know, they just don't have the money and the savings to be able to even afford to move here and make a good effort. And sure. when they get here, they're months behind because they have no network. Right. They, they can't just they can't just go start going fundraising, etc. So they they have to you know typically the ones that do make a successful move uh, come out here and visit for a couple of weeks at a time, you know, over a period of a year or two, and try to build up a network and try to figure out how they're going to do it uh, and make some kind of a plan. You know, it takes time to do the move. Um, also, they need to understand that you know they might be the smartest. Uh, the smartest person in their in their school or in their little town, but uh, you know San Francisco is the startup Olympics. This is the best of the best in the world, and all of a sudden, you know, it's like somebody from a rural town going to Stanford or Harvard, and think that they're smart, but all of a sudden they're surrounded by by kind of the best in the world and the smartest in the world, and all of a sudden they're not that special anymore. Sure. Um, so that's that's also kind of a shock. Um, another piece is that I, I hear companies startups pitching you know, somewhere in Central Eastern Europe saying, well, we're going to build this B2B service and then we're going to be selling in America. Um, my first question is, have you ever been to the U.S.? And what makes you think that this is the product that, you know, will answer a particular need? And if their answer is no, but we're going to hire somebody that will make it happen for us so we'll get a partner, then, you know, they just don't understand the customer well enough to build something that's going to, that's going to work sure. as a business. So it, it's very, very tricky. So when people do come over to America for, you know, just kind of networking and maybe trying to build a little bit of a network before they might, say, outsource their sales and marketing, do you know if they need, like, a visa or they just kind of just come on, like, a holiday? Or 
Do you know how that works a little bit? Just I'm curious. Sure. Yeah, it's it's actually not that difficult to get a to get a, a tourist or even a business visa. Um, so you know, depends on of course, but I can tell you most Eastern European countries that need visas, you know, um, it's not that much of a cost. It's not that difficult. Um, you just have to prove to the local government and, and to the embassy there that you intend to return. <laughs> that you're not going to just right. uh, kind of a pull a pull a fast one and, and stay in the country. So uh, that's kind of a process, but it's usually a, a visa that allows you to stay in the country for six months out of the, uh, every 12 months. Right? Oh, okay. so they, they can spend up to 50 um, and they cannot, uh, with those visas, whether it's a business visa or a tourist visa, they cannot earn money and work for anybody, right? They can't draw a salary, right. uh, but they can come and visit. Um, they have to get already, you know, work permit, etc. I'm not an expert on this, but I've encountered this quite a bit. Uh, there are ways for them to get executive visa, which will allow them to essentially bring their company here that has some kind of investment, has some money in the bank to show them that's a real business. And then, then they're able to work on that. Right. Because I guess you're bringing money into America and you're hiring Americans to do jobs. So therefore, you can kind of come and, and work on this executive visa? Yeah, it's something like that. It, it, is, it essentially allows people with some kind of wherewithal to come and, you know, kind of demonstrate that they can support themselves. They can, they have their building business and hopefully they're creating jobs and things like that. Right, right. Um, so I know that you're a mentor and advisor to companies. What do you look for when you're, you know, looking to mentor or advise a company or individual, I guess? So, yeah, I mean, I've, I've for the last four years or so, um, I meant, I spent quite a bit of time mentoring uh, as part of accelerators. So with 500 startups, with a handful in Europe, as I mentioned. And um, these days, I'm, I'm working on a couple of, I've kind of stepped up to working with a little bit more mature companies. Uh, so I'm working with one company where um, I'm leading their Series B fundraise. This is a company that has you know, over 100 employees. This is no longer a little project. This is something a little bit uh, more tangible. Um, so I tend to, uh, I tended to, you know, in the last few months or last year, I've kind of shifted more towards consulting with companies that are a bit further along. Okay. Um, when I'm, when I'm looking as a mentor, when I look, uh, when I look at companies as, you know, what kind of value can I provide them? Um, is it just kind of basics, you know, general things, you know, teach them how to pitch, how to put together a presentation, general sales things. If it's something like that, then I'd rather do it in a group setting with, you know, maybe a workshop. Uh, but, uh, the main thing that I've looked for when I'm helping accelerators pick out good companies to accelerate or in, include in their product programs is to see if they're coachable. Um, if they're already know-it-alls, then really, you can't really teach them anything whether they need it or not. They think they already know everything. Right. Um, so they have to be open to it first and foremost, they have to be coachable and they have to show that they can hustle. That's really a, a very important kind of American characteristic that is taken for granted and doesn't necessarily exist in you know, Europe or Asia, where somebody can work hard and hustle and, and make the impossible possible. Uh, so I look for those kind of characteristics. And uh, one of my partners, Max, uh, he likes to kind of uh, give assignments to see, to kind of test that hustle, to see if these, if these guys will uh, persevere and, and push through walls. Because as a startup, you have to create something out of nothing. Sure. So um, and that's really difficult. What kind of tests would you give somebody to test their hustle? Um, it, it's simple things. It's, you know, if, you know, really 
the ultimate test is like, would I hire this person? Would I be excited about hiring this person? Are they a hustler? Are they a go-getter? Can they get things? Can they get things done? Can they be creative? Are they self-directed? And you kind of take that to the extreme with you know uh, an entrepreneur. An angel investor should really be looking at this. They should see you know you get to know and you kind of date the company a little bit before you write them a check to see okay well you know the plans are nice but can you execute? And what the, the means is okay I'm gonna give you an assignment. You said okay I need to get uh, 10 customers or 10 prospects. Okay well go and go and get them and tell me how you did it. Right? Okay. If, if everything that they uh, that they present is in future tense. Um, or they are just sitting there working on a product and they think that somebody you know, magically will come along and buy it uh, or become a user or customer of theirs and they have no plan and no ability to show that they can actually get people to use the product, then unfortunately they don't have what it takes. Right? Right. So what it takes is a lot more about the hustle. You know, uh, as far as you know, being obsessed with the product or you know, doing things quote-unquote right on the engineering side, all of these things are kind of excuses early on. Right. Um, it doesn't matter what you build if there's nobody to use it. Sure. And a lot of these guys are engineers that start these companies, and they they have this fear and they don't have an experience of dealing with people, of selling, um, and they really need to show that they can do this. Otherwise, they might have a product with you know that nobody will ever use, nobody will ever know about. Right. And you know who cares what platform it was written on or or how well it's built if nobody's going to use it. No, that makes a lot of sense. I think that's really good advice. I think people kind of forget about that, right? They think that they just put out something or whatever it looks on paper and they like the projection some people give or the reason that they're going to grow like 10 times year over year. You're just like, you're basing this on nothing, right? So I, it's totally interesting that you, that you like your approach to this. I think it's fascinating, actually. Yeah, I mean, it has to be realistic. You have to be able to extrapolate from something. I mean, early on, when it's a kind of a seed or idea stage startup, you can you can sell idea, you can sell smoke, but as soon as you have some kind of numbers or you you release the product, all of a sudden the focus turns to numbers. Show me what you were able to do. It's all about past tense. Don't tell me what you think magically is going to happen, you know, some point in the future. Go ahead and and try selling and and tell me what the real numbers are. You know, how how long did it take you to get people interested in sales cycle? How much money did you spend on advertising? Um, you know, a couple of mistakes that the startups make, uh, startup founders make, is they go on stage and they'll, we have no competition, and they drop the mic. It's like, well, congratulations, there's probably no product to be had there. There's no market. If nobody is working on this problem, you know, I really don't believe in geniuses, right? right. Why did you think of this? Nobody else thought of this. It does, you know, it rarely, if ever, happens. Um, and then the other thing, they'll come up and say, you know, we've done all this any money on marketing okay well that all, all that tells me is that you have no idea how you're going to scale this product and how to convert advertising dollars into customers right, right? you have to run you have to run experiments and spend some money on advertising and tell me okay for every dollar we spend on advertising we make a dollar and ten cents within an average of six weeks great you have a business but if you told me like we got ten customers and they're all through friends and family and you have a big smile on your face well you haven't proven anything. <laughs> really. Sure, sure, sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. I, th I think that's really good advice. I think that's the one thing that I find really kind of fascinating about um, internet businesses is guys are just like, well, I'll figure out the business model later. And you're like, well, that's not necessarily good because if you set up a brick and mortar store without a business model or a way to generate revenue, you're not going to last very long. But 
it seems weird that if you, a lot of people think that if you start something online that you can just figure it out over, you know, years, right? I think that's fa always fascinated me about the whole internet startup thing. Yeah, I mean, they're looking at examples, you know, Facebook didn't have advertising for the first X years of its existence, Snapchat sure. or whatever. But these are extremely fast growing consumer startups. And although to the outside world, it seems like they're just investing in growth and they don't know, you know, they don't care about making money and they're just pumping into growth of users. Well, that, it, it doesn't mean that they don't know and they're not talking, you know, they don't have whiteboards full of potential revenue. And they very likely, you know, most times know exactly when to flip that switch and start making money. I mean, look at Snapchat now. Sure. Right. Uh, look at uh, Instagram a few years after the acquisition. It's now, you know, they bought it for a billion dollars. It's now a $5 billion business instantly for Facebook with enough users. Yeah. But, uh, you know, these, cons these, these large-scale consumer plays are few and far in between. And further, uh, for a lot, of these, um, a lot of these companies coming out of small countries, small markets, let's say, for example, Croatia, 4.5 million population, Estonia, 1.2 million population, you know, these tiny little countries, uh, they're not going to be able to capture, um, you know, they're not going to build the next Snapchat there, right? They're not going to build the next consumer thing because you need uh, 10 million users to, to even understand this type of business, right? Sure. You need to gather them quickly. Um, and you're dealing with different, different cultures, different languages, different usage habits. You know, these kind of first world problems are going to be continued to be solved from the U.S., Right. Uh, the startups that come out of small countries, small markets need to be much more pragmatic. Either they focus on kind of a wide category uh, that's that's local, that can be a multi-hundred million or billion dollar business, um, or they focus on, you know, global things that uh, that are more B2B, that they can understand better, that they can use their small local market as a laboratory and then rapidly expand to other markets in Europe, you know, Western Europe um, or globally. So um, games are the only thing that really kind of have a chance of scaling globally very fast um, because these, some of these themes are very universal, right? Sure, yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm not at all a gaming expert. My gaming expertise uh, goes back to Tetris tournaments in the, <laughs> in the middle school library. So That's awesome. Um, <laughs> I focus much more on B2B and consumer stuff. So. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's my thought on, on all of this is, you know, a lot of times they'll, you know, you can't afford to be lazy, right? You, you can't afford to kind of sit along. Nobody's going to do it for you, right? You have to make a business out of it or figure out how it's going to be a business and, and figure out when you're going to flip what switch. Uh, so it's tricky. And that's, that's what we look for. usually. Sure. No, I couldn't agree more. I think that's awesome advice. So I'm curious, you have an upcoming book. Um, Maybe let's tell the listeners what that's about. Sure, yeah. So I have a couple of uh, kind of creative projects coming out. Uh, one is a book uh, that I'm working on. It's always been a dream of mine to publish something. And uh, if you remember back in the 90s, there was a book called The Pocket MBA. Yeah, I remember that. And uh, it, became a, yeah, it became a classic. And the idea is like, okay, it's an MBA in a book. Well, you can easily make a premise now, or I can, or and I do, that uh, startup accelerators are the new MBA. You sure. can learn quickly by doing and, um, you know, it, it's tough, as tough or tougher to get in a top, top accelerator program as it is into a top business school program now, right? Less than 3% acceptance rate into Y Combinator, 500 startups, tech stars, et cetera, uh, much like Stanford and Harvard MBAs. And um, what you learn there will prepare you in some ways much better for doing business as a startup than a traditional MBA. 
so in my experience as a mentor and my experience as an entrepreneur, tech entrepreneur, having raised you know a lot of venture capital and gone through the the gauntlet several times, uh, what I'm writing is accelerated startup. So it's basically an accelerator in a book, you know, start to finish from idea to product to company, uh, what you would learn in a top accelerator program. And, um, and it's a good premise for being also able to get into a top accelerator program and taking full advantage of that program. So that's the book um, should be coming out uh, next year. Uh, right now it's on pre-sale. Uh, you can go to golem.net slash book. Simple enough. Sure. And, um, it's a it's a pre-order and kind of doing it doing it also in an innovative way kind of with a with a startup uh, as, a, as a publisher as well. Um, so that's that's uh, something exciting uh, that I'm working on, excited about. And the other one is uh, is actually a feature-length documentary uh, called uh, Startup Spring. And what we did is we shot a feature-length. We shot a lot of interviews and a lot of footage on our Middle East tour in February. Um, and the idea is that, you know, the Western world sees Middle East as kind of what they see on the news, which is terrorism and all the bad things. Uh, but in reality, there are a number of young people that are very smart, well-educated, very motivated, uh, that want to change their own future, the future of their families, the future of their country. And they're doing it through tech entrepreneurship. And we met some, some very talented uh, guys and girls, and we've interviewed them extensively. So working on editing that now, hopefully that will come out early next year uh, in a film festival as well. So watch out for that. So a couple of creative projects, and um, I had a, I, I was a, a few classes away from a film directing major. Really? Uh, so this is, like, this is kind of fun for me uh, to actually uh, put together a film project. Sure. Well. No, I think it's awesome. I think, I think it's incredible that you're doing something to cover, you know, startups outside of you know the states and especially north america because you're right majority of people just see what's on the media and it's it's so not true and i think that's really exciting and i'll post all the links that you mentioned in the show notes for for the listeners so they can check that stuff out but i'm super excited to check out uh that documentary yeah we're it's, it's a lot of fun and uh we're having a lot of fun with editing it right now but uh, we have some really good footage from the three cities and some very interesting interviews of, of the local uh, Local guys and gals. Sure. What cities were those again? That was uh, Egypt, Cairo, Egypt, uh, Baku, Azerbaijan, and um, Antalya, Turkey. Okay, that's awesome. So we're we're almost running out of time. I'm just curious. Maybe you can share some advice for aspiring entrepreneurs. You know, anything what to do and or not to do. Sure. I'll, I'll give uh, kind of my basic advice that I always give when I, when I do keynotes um, to young entrepreneurs. You know, in, in life, you have a choice. In your career, you have a choice. You can go the traditional corporate route, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, or you can go the entrepreneurial route. Now, if you're um, enamored and romanticized by startups, like many people are, because we're at a peak of a, of a current cycle, and a lot, of, a lot of people are choosing to go in the startup world, um, you have to kind of perfect your craft. You have to understand what you're getting yourself into. It's very difficult. You can't just jump into it. Um, so if you're really going that route, what I usually recommend is for somebody to work in a fast-growing startup for some period of time to learn, to learn how it works. And um, learning on other people's mistakes and, and being part of a startup that's working, that's growing, uh, that's growing quick, you will learn a lot. Right? You will take all these things, put them in your back pocket, and you will be able to at least calibrate yourself and know you know, what, what it's supposed to feel like when this thing is working. Uh, because more, more often than not, it doesn't. 
the other thing is you, you have to pick very carefully what you're working on, what, what idea you choose to dedicate the next two to five to ten to the rest of your life to, right, sure. if it works. You have to be in love with this idea, um, and it has to be – you're going to have to answer this question, this who is the customer and what is the problem that you're solving, right? You have to be able to answer that. And it has to be something that you can't live without solving, right? You have, this thing is bugging you. It's not something you thought of, you know, last weekend and you're going to jump in and change your life and start working on it. But it's something that's been brewing in your head for a long time. And you've been thinking and researching and socializing and talking to people about, and you convince yourself that this is something worth doing. Uh, there is a market need for the solution and you are the right person or the right team or, you know, right part of the team to be able to do this. Right? You have to be very, very uh, thoughtful about this. And only then can you dive in and do it. You know, entrepreneurship is by far not for everyone. Um, it, right now, it's you know, easy to raise seed, seed capital, relatively easy. Uh, it's easy to kind of get swept up into all these startup events and to all the cheese and cracker dinners you know, <laughs> every night of the week and, and you know, patting each other on the back and saying, you know, and, and calling yourself a CEO on LinkedIn. Sure. Um, but that's the easy part. The hard part is actually making something out of nothing. Um, and you really have to be skilled. If it's something worth doing, something hot, it's a hot market, know you're going to be competing with some very, very smart people that probably have more resources than you, probably have more experience than you, and you have to be ready for it. Um, you can definitely get the same experience, um, you know, the same startup experience, and actually learn a lot more if you decide to kind of be humble and that first time around, join a company and, and learn from within. Um, so it's a little bit counter, you know, counter uh, motivating. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying go ahead, go for a jump, you know, jump into it. Uh, it's a little bit more pragmatic because I think that's really for the average person, you know, for the average smart, talented person, that's really the way to go. There, there's, you know, one genius per generation, per decade that can do it and take it to the moon, uh, Zuckerberg style. But, uh, you know, odds are you're not it. Odds are you need to be a little bit more pragmatic and, and get some experience under your belt before you jump in. No, I, I think that's actually really incredible advice. I think not, not a lot of people actually talk about building like a real business. And, you know, everybody thinks they're the next like Steve Jobs or like Mark Zuckerberg, right? So I think, I think that's fascinating. And I think that's awesome advice. Um, so maybe in closing the show, Let's promote um, kind of your social media and uh, where people can find you online. And I'll post these again in the show notes. Sure. Uh, so my, my home online is my, my website, golom.net, um, G-O-L-O-M-B.net. Uh, I'm also pretty active on Twitter, at Vitaly G, V-I-T-A-L-Y-G. Uh, from either one of those, you can find out all the events and all the projects that I'm working on. Um, that would probably be the best place to reach out to me as well. So um, there are a few other things that I have on the radar that I'll be announcing some point soon, uh, but you can find out everything there. Perfect. Sadly, we're out of time, but this has been awesome. This has been tons of really good information, and I really, really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. Thanks, Kevin. I appreciate it, and good luck to everybody out there. Thanks. Talk soon. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. You can visit past shows at buildingthefutureshow.com. If you're going to the Startup Expo on February 16th and 17th in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and want to record an episode, please contact me. The music for the show is by Electric Mantra. Check them out at electricmantra.com. Until next time, keep building the future.